Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is generously supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney to support research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. If you've been hospitalized in Europe, North America, Australia, or the Middle East in recent years, chances are that at some point a medical worker from the Philippines has played a part in your treatment. As Mega Amrith writes in the Introduction to Caring for Strangers, Filipino Medical Workers in Asia, newly published with Nias Press, Filipinos today comprise one of the largest global diasporas of medical workers. But as the book's subtitle indicates, it's a diaspora that stretches not only beyond but also across Asia. Whereas other studies have looked at the political economy of care in the West, Caring for Strangers is an ethnographic exploration of Filipino medical workers in Singapore. Its author is an urban anthropologist of migration and research fellow at the United Nations University Institute on Globalization, Culture and Mobility, based in Barcelona. And she's joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to speak with me, Nick Cheeseman, a member at the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton, and host of the channel. Omega, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me on the show. The book's broadly concerned with the movement of medical workers out of the Philippines to other parts of Asia, but um, specifically with nurses in Singapore. Why nurses and why Filipinos in Singapore? Well, maybe I could start by by answering why Singapore, because that goes back a longer way. And my interest in, in migration to Singapore has, it's part of my personal biography. I was born in Singapore to parents who migrated there from India and grew up in a society that is essentially created and shaped by diverse migrants. But as a student of of the humanities and social sciences, it was difficult not to be aware of the inequalities that a number of migrant workers face in Singapore. It's very visible. And really, this city depends on migrants to sustain households and families and to build uh, infrastructure across the city. But at the same time, these are people who don't have the same rights and freedoms as many of you know, the local population or other, other kinds of migrants who come in you know, at a higher skill level. And so the government distinguishes between foreign workers and foreign talent. They often speak about it in this language. And I became interested in working in the volunteer and advocacy area with these populations who were sort of the foreign workers and the most visibly marginalized in Singapore. Um, and then, I, and then as a student, I developed my research from an undergraduate level, moving up through my doctorate work on migrants in Singapore. And Filipinos are, are among the largest and most visible groups of migrant 
migrant workers and especially migrant women. Um, you know, you can see them gathering every Sunday on the main shopping street, uh, Orchard Road in Singapore, having picnics. And I was initially very curious about their stories in a society that didn't seem to know so much about their biographies. But then that goes to the question of, of why nurses and why Filipino nurses in Singapore. I began to realize a little bit later, especially in the early 2000s, that between these two categories, the so-called unskilled and highly skilled or foreign workers and foreign talent, were a much greater number of migrants in the middle than initially appeared. Um, and this had to do with the increasing diversification of those working in between these two categories. And so looking at only the two ends of the spectrum tell just a partial story. And what you have is an emerging group of semi-professional migrants situated somewhat ambivalently in between. And it's here in these in-between liminal spaces where boundaries of all kinds are, are negotiated and contested. And so, of course, one of the big groups in this space um, are medical workers. And when I say medical workers, I'm referring primarily to nurses of different ranks, but also to therapists and healthcare assistants um, and technicians. But anyway, given the history of Filipinos in domestic work in Singapore, I was also curious to learn more about those working in more institutionalized and professional contexts of care, many of whom were also from the Philippines. Um, and this coincided with, you know, the Philippines becoming known in the world as a major exporter of medical workers and nurses uh, to countries across the world, as you mentioned in the introduction. And for many young people, it was seen as a passport to, or it is seen as a passport to a better and more secure life abroad. So then I had many questions that I wanted to address, you know, how their experiences were similar or different to domestic workers what their hopes of migration were in this sector that seemed to offer a lot of promise for the future and the kinds of relationships they develop with their colleagues and the people they care for, especially in this distinctive intra-Asian context. And so I set out to do an ethnography of their experiences, looking at how their aspirations you know, are reinforced or, or challenged, transformed along the way. And it follows them from the Philippines, you know, hospitals and nursing schools, in Manila, to spaces in Singapore where they work, also where they spend time outside of work in churches and shopping malls. You looked at two different facilities. What were those facilities and what kinds of work were the nurses doing in those facilities? Right. So I concentrated my, my ethnography in two institutional spaces. Um, on the one hand, a, a large government-run hospital in Singapore with patients of all backgrounds, all kinds of specialties, medical specialties, also medical tourists who were there from other countries receiving treatment for shorter periods of time. And the other space was a, a nursing home run by a, a Buddhist char charitable foundation, which cared for chronically ill patients as well as older patients. And so these institutions were, were very different one from the other. And the government hospital, it was really kind of this picture of, you know, the high-tech Singapore hospital, efficient, fast-paced, this ideal that many of the hospitals want to kind of give an image, image of themselves to other people because health is really a sector uh, that the government is investing in. And the Buddhist 
nursing home was very different. It was a lot slower pace. Most of the medical workers in the Buddhist nursing home were actually migrants and working in different nursing specialties. But a lot of them were nursing assistants, so not necessarily nurses at the higher ranks. And in the government hospital, you had many more Singaporean nurses of different backgrounds, um, but also a number of migrant nurses in different ranks as well. So the atmosphere, the pace was very different and also the kinds of care that nurses had to work with. Roughly how many medical workers from the Philippines are there in Singapore and what kind of training and preparation do they have in the Philippines and on arrival before entering the workforce? Well, it's it's hard to find the, the exact data for the number of Filipino medical workers in Singapore. You have a stock estimate of about 200,000 Filipinos in Singapore, but it's not broken down according to, to occupation. So you have domestic workers, medical workers, but also many in, in IT services, hospitality industry. That said, the Singapore Nursing Board does release some data on the on the numbers of migrant nurses and Filipinos in, in particular, and it's about say around almost 20% of, of the nursing workforce is from the Philippines. And in some ranks, it goes up to about 50%. But that data doesn't include nurses that, that could be, you know, nursing assistants. It includes only registered nurses and enrolled nurses, which are the two higher ranks or the higher and the middle rank. And it doesn't include, um, you know, those who might be working in in private homes as caregivers as well, because you also have that space, which brings together trained nurses, but also also domestic workers. Um, in terms of the training that nurses have, I mean, it's it's really striking that at the time when I was doing my field work, the Philippines seemed to be in the midst of its nursing boom. And when I when I did some of my field work in Manila, you could really see signs of nursing everywhere. You know, recruitment agencies, you see nurses in their white uniforms um, all over the city. And it's really something that a lot of young people take up in the hope that they can then use it as a means to go abroad. Um, it's a strategy of social mobility for many families. So these are also family decisions. Um, and as a result, the number of nursing colleges in Manila um, really took off. And there are more than 400 nursing colleges of different types, some which are very well known, um, others which are newer. And then nurses, they graduate and then they have to take a, another exam, uh, which not everybody passes. But those who do then have to work in a hospital in the Philippines to get some experience. And often this is voluntary work. It's not it's not paid. But the more experience they have, the easier it is to go, to go abroad. But because waiting times to go to, to countries like the United States, which many nurses aspire to reach, the waiting times are so long, it could take up to three years to find the right placement, to, to get the qualifications that you need, to do the exam that's also different. And so they start to, to look at other destinations as transit cities or stepping stones. And Singapore is one of those cities. So they often see it as a place to, to gain more experience um, in their plans to move on after that. 
Great. I think that really gives us a very good sense of the setting in which you're doing the work. So let's move to questions of interpretation. And one of the things I really liked about the study was how you weave a number of analytic strands, at least as I read it throughout the text, and bring them back together, tying the ethnographic description together with them. Among them, a key strand is status. You mentioned already boundary maintenance and contestation, and it seems to go to that point about how all of your interlocutors' relationships, whether it's with one another, the Singaporeans whom they care for, uh, other Filipinos, as well as their own imagining of their relationship with the country from which they've come, the, the Philippines, all of these relationships are saturated with a concern for and an attention to what their status is and what their status ought to be. So I'd like to ask, how do Filipino nurses establish their status in relationship to others? What are some of the ambiguities and difficulties that they encounter in doing so? And why does uh, status matter so much for the contents of your book? Well, indeed, status is is at the heart of this book. And it, it starts off, you know, already when, when people take up nursing in the Philippines. In my interviews there, a lot of people spoke about how they took nurse, how they took up nursing because of what it represents, its symbolic power, in a sense. And this comes partly from the history of nursing as, as a service, as a vocation, a calling, which, you know, serving others in the, in the Catholic um, imaginary. Um, but more recently, it's because of its associations with with money, with a better life, with a better salary and, and a better future. Um, and so it's really loaded with, with a lot of expectations and, and it holds a status for many people. So people will say, will say in the Philippines that if you're wearing the white uniform, people will treat you with a lot of respect. And, and also because they know that it could be that you are going abroad um, and representing the Philippines, you know, as a, as a professional abroad. Um, and within communities as well for families, it's really, you know, if they have a son or a daughter who goes abroad as a nurse, it's a, it's a sense of pride that they have. They, they tell the stories. My son is in California. He's been there for nine years. And so the status issue already starts in the Philippines. But this gets shaken when they leave the Philippines. And especially in the context of Singapore, Nursing as a profession does not hold the same status. Doctors are highly respected. Nurses are too, but it's still associated with those who are not really, you know, in the real professions. It's still associated with kind of women's natural work, which is undervalued, not valued as a profession. It's also viewed as somehow more dirty work. So that's already a change in, in what nursing means to those who, who, who are in the Philippines. And when they come to Singapore, it completely changes. And this is not only the perception of, of a nurse, it's also the kinds of tasks that they do. So in the Philippines, the status of being a nurse also comes with being kind of a medical professional, having a lot of responsibility in medical decisions, being partners of doctors. Um, and in Singapore, it's really they're doing more of the dirty work, uh, the bedside care, dealing with bodily fluids. And, and so it's also, you know, the material difference that they face in that status. It becomes more complicated or you have another layer added when you consider that history of migration of Filipino domestic workers. In Singapore, this has really become synonymous. You know, Filipina and maid is kind of a stereotype, a derogatory stereotype that many people have. 
And as I mentioned at the very beginning, they're, they're among the most marginalized in Singapore. And so the status really comes out powerfully when nurses are being confused. You know, for instance, the people that they care for think of them as maids. Or when they're out, they're not respected wearing their uniforms, but they're also seen as just like any other Filipino maid um, because this work is not valued, because they're, they're stigmatized in the society. And so really the boundaries between domestic work and nursing within a broader category of care labor get blurred. And that's really where the boundary maintenance comes out very strongly when Filipina nurses really try and establish, you know, a sense of higher status in comparison to their domestic worker compatriots. It also comes out with their colleagues, the, their seniors who, who, who might be Chinese Singaporeans who don't treat them with the respect that they, they think they ought to have as nurses. It comes out with fellow migrant nurses who come from other countries and Filipinos kind of take pride in the fact that they are known around the world for being caring, professional, that they're in demand. And so these stereotypes and boundary maintenance processes also come through um, in these relationships in the workplace as well. And also through issues of language, you know, Filipinos are known to speak better English and so they kind of establish that status being global and modern and being able to speak English in comparison to their colleagues who might speak Singlish, Singaporean English, for example. And also another issue is the residence status that they have in Singapore. A lot of nurses have the possibility to get to get permanent residence with the visa that they come in on. And so that's also another category where boundary maintenance comes into play. You know, those who have the right residents and those who don't. And this is really enacted through, you know, distancing, through uh, asserting a sense of superiority, and it really uh, manifests itself in the social lives of migrants as well. So uh, one of the ways that the workers emphasize uh, that they have a position of superiority is by referring to a kind of a morality in their personal lives and, and public practices in order to invert the relationship that they have with the dominant community in Singapore, the, the people that they're taking care of, and distance themselves or establish the kinds of boundaries that you're identifying with the rest of the Filipino worker community in uh, Singapore. Perhaps you could pick up on that point maybe also with one or two very short illustrations from uh, the portraits of medical workers in the book. Right. So the, the way they, they assert their, their status, um, as, you, as you pointed out, is really through moral discourses and practices, um, which also are very much present in their everyday lives. So when they feel that they are being treated in kind of degrading ways or stigmatized or, or not granted the respect. Um, they also kind of reflect on what kind of society is this. So, you know, for example, we have one of the informants spent a lot of time with. Um, she, she had an accident and, you know, at the time she was in the position of being the patient. Um, and that really kind of came, it came through the way she saw health and well-being in a very different way. So she complained about how People in Singapore take so many pills. They're so dependent on pills. And that's a reflection of the cold, distant society that it, that it kind of embodies. And she said, no, in my case, even though I'm a 
medical professional and I give these pills. I really believe in, in faith healing. And she spoke about Hilot in the Philippines and how these village faith healers, and this is also, you know, intimately tied with, with Catholicism as well, um, but also kind of pre-colonial indigenous practices are a lot more meaningful to her and, and situate her in a kind of a moral world that is more more meaningful, that, that connects her to different people, but also different worlds of, of relationships. Um, so that's one example, you know, where you see that Filipinos use this sense of morality to assert their, their status. You also have it quite powerfully when among those who work in the nursing homes and they come to Singapore thinking this is another Asian society and we should fit in. We should understand the social relationships here. They come with that expectation that it should be familiar, but they're always shocked to see that they are the ones who are caring for older people and not the family members of those who are caring for those who are older because they say in the Philippines, we will always take care of the elderly. The family is always there. We would never put them in a nursing home. So that's really another space where these moral judgments come through. And they say, we Filipinos are not like this. So it becomes kind of nationally imbued as well. But then it's a bit ironic because at the same time, as they assert this kind of Filipino sense of virtue, they also have their own moral judgments of the other Filipinos that they are trying to distance themselves from. So you have certain nurses who will say, I won't go to Lucky Plaza on Orchard Road, which is where a lot of Filipino domestic workers go to, because these women, they hang out with men from other countries, and they, they judge them on how they dress and how they behave. So they're also making similar moral judgments, not just with the society that they're in, but also with fellow migrants and trying to reassert that sense of status again. So the status issue comes back um, in many ways. That's a really interesting part of the book, that the tension that you're explaining and exploring there. And uh, at one point you quote uh, Hertzfeld on strategic self-essentialism that seemed to go to the point very nicely. Uh, Megan, let's take a, a break here. And when we return, we'll go to some other questions around why well, there are so many aspirations, professionalism, gender, class, home, and your current research project as well. Okay, thanks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. As you know, the New Books Network is a nonprofit organization dedicated to public education. And we would just like to remind those of you who listen to us frequently and enjoy the interviews that we need your support in order to continue to do what we do. It's very easy to make a contribution. All you have to do is go to the New Books Network homepage, that is newbooksnetwork.com, and follow the instructions. Again, we are a nonprofit, therefore your contribution will be tax deductible. Thanks very much for listening to the network, and we look forward to providing you with many, many more excellent author interviews. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Nick Cheesman, talking with Mega Amrit about Caring for Strangers, Filipino Medical Workers in Asia, published in 2017 by NIAS Press. Mega, before the break, we were talking about the self-essentializing project of the Filipino medical workers in Singapore who you studied in your ethnography. 
And at the same time that I was reading your book, I took the opportunity to read Lalai Amiria's Downwardly Global, a new study of uh, Pakistani women migrants in Canada. And, and I was struck by some of the symmetries uh, between the two works, but also some interesting departures in terms of the interpretations that the, both of you had to offer. So one of the symmetries concerned the bodily comportment and management of bodily practices. So Amiria's talking a lot about how in Canada there's there's a government project for comportment of the body, of the, the smells of the body and the physicality of women's bodies in the workforce there. And the points that she's making seem to go to what you're saying about Filipino workers in Singapore. And certainly there's a governmental project in Singapore that you're speaking to as well. And yet it also seemed to me as if the workers in Singapore are somehow internalizing the project for um, bodily comportment and management as part of a program for promotion and the advancement of their own careers in a way that's somewhat different from the Canadian case that Amiria is discussing. So perhaps you could take up that point and then we'll turn to a couple of other related issues. Right. So going back to the point on on strategic um, self-essentialism, it often starts in the Philippines, when I when I met people who aspired to go abroad, they often spoke of themselves as, you know, we are we are in demand around the world. We Filipinos, uh, we are known to be clean. We are known to be caring, compassionate, and God fearing. You know, these were the qualities that they were very proud to to talk about and and to kind of position themselves in the global labor market. Um, but of course, it's you know it's highly racialized, and and they're doing this exactly, but in a sense of you know, we can we can work this to our advantage and we can sell ourselves discursively in this sense. Partly they internalize that too. They they believe that they are the leading nurses in all these senses, but also they know that's that's what works in the global labor market. And then when they come to Singapore and then they're trained through these, you know, government programs which really work on bodily comportment, how to relate to customers, how to smile, how to make eye contact, how to deal with these discrete cultures, you know, in the sense of Chinese, Malay, Indian in very kind of uh, compartmentalized ways. And you could get a sense that the Filipino nurses in these training sessions were also really internalizing that, wanting to be you know, embodying this this professional comportment or habitus because it, it it supports their own projects for migration, as you said. It's beneficial to them to do well in this system, to demonstrate success and to perhaps realize plans to move on if they're successful. But what's interesting is when, when the essentialism comes back in other ways, you know, when they are essentialized as or stereotyped as maids in this kind of racialized and gendered sense, or as people from third world countries, or, you know, these negative forms of essentialism that others ascribe to them, then the tension really comes out a lot more. So you identify the racialized character of the project and the feminized character is also an important part of the account that you offer. So a race and gender are present throughout the book. And yet in your interpretations, uh, from my reading at least, you don't use race or gender deliberately as categories for systematic analysis. So why is that? 
Well, indeed, race, uh, gender, also class, they, they come out throughout the book in, in many different ways. And just to give a few examples, nursing has kind of feminized associations, but as I said, with this new association of being linked to migration and, and status and money, a lot of men also take up nursing and they talk about nursing as, as a profession in a way that transcends these sort of gendered characterizations of the profession. But of course, it's situated in a context of broader care labor. And of course, there is the gendered and, and racialized sector of care labor that domestic workers very much fall into. And so, you know, you really see that the way that this work is poorly valued when they go abroad and stigmatization of migrants in feminized labor sectors leads to nurses wanting to assert a sense of, of distinction and to kind of distance themselves from this feminized characterization, which is undervalued, which is stigmatized and, and seen as not professional. The way I, I thought about it really was that we, we know already a fair bit about the feminization of care work. There's a, a vast literature on this topic as well. So I took some of that for granted or as given um, in the sense that this work would sit in dialogue with a lot of these other studies on the feminization of care labor. And really what I wanted to do was to look at the categories that my own subjects were using to understand their worlds and experiences um, and these were often about gender and race and class, but they were also about nation, um, citizenship. And so instead, I wanted to organize it more thematically in the way that we've really been talking about it, to look at how gender, race um, and class interplay um, into these broader tropes that stretch across the work. Is there a class difference between the Filipino medical workers and their domestic worker counterparts in Singapore? One reason I ask that question is that you point to very interestingly how the domestic workers tend to organize and they engage in political questions that we might associate with class struggles in a way that the nurses don't. Right. So I'll, I'll answer that in maybe in two parts. If you think about the distinctions that they're making, that nurses are making between themselves and, and domestic workers, it's really these practices of, of class and of status and dress and comportment. But if you, look, if you look at the backgrounds of nurses and domestic workers, they may not necessarily be so different. If you go back towards, you know, to their family backgrounds in the Philippines, they might be, but they might not be. And I take the example of uh, one of my informants in the Philippines, um, a nurse called Lisa, who's from a family of four. Three of her sisters are domestic workers working abroad, even though they have degrees in accountancy and biology. They found jobs abroad in domestic work and they went. And by chance, she was the only one who went to nursing school. It was difficult for her family to put uh, all the daughters through college, but by putting Lisa through nursing school, she kind of became the one in the family who, who could be the person to help the family out of their more difficult socioeconomic circumstances. And so then they all converge, you know, maybe in a place like Singapore, people of different backgrounds, but because they're coming in on different visas, they have very different mobilities, they're, they're occupying very different spaces in Singapore. And so I think that sense of distinction is also accentuated, but it doesn't necessarily map on to their, their backgrounds in the Philippines. Now, the question on, on politics and the distinctions between domestic workers, political practices and nurses was an interesting one and, and one that I didn't necessarily set out to study. 
but became very apparent through through my field work. And there were there are often times when I was doing my field work with nurses when I thought they don't seem to be talking much about politics in the Philippines or about trying to improve their labor conditions here. And I tried to probe at times, but it never really seemed to to emerge in a natural way. At the same time, when I spent time with domestic workers in skills classes, you know, they were a lot more ready to express themselves and they were a lot more embedded in sort of the nonprofit network of organizations in Singapore that work to support migrant workers. And these organizations deal primarily with uh, domestic workers and also those in the construction sector, migrant men in the construction sector. And so domestic workers are not in unions either in Singapore, but they participate, they have a political voice in the sense that they engage with these organizations in campaigns, for example, for a a day off, a weekly day off, um, which are led by these organizations rather than the domestic workers, but often in partnership and in dialogue with domestic workers through campaigns to make domestic work recognized as work. They're cultivating themselves as political subjects, also networking with transnational NGOs such as Migrante Internacional and Migrant Forum in Asia. So even if they are not protesting on the streets, as they might be in Hong Kong, I think it's a lot more open there than it is in Singapore, but they are participating a lot more in politics in that sense, in politics of, of labor and, and dignified labor. But with the nurses, uh, I found that they didn't have much to do at all with these nonprofit organizations, I guess because they deal with migrant workers. Again, they didn't really have much to do with those networks or want to be associated with the same types of migrant workers that these organizations were supporting. And I got the sense that also because there isn't a, a sense of professional solidarity among nurses from the Philippines and with, you know, the other, with the Singaporean nurses, there wasn't the sense of professional solidarity and a, and a collective interest in that sense. It was marked a lot more by hierarchy and competition And I felt that the way that nurses dealt with that was really to project their hopes for something better to the future. So rather than trying to improve their labor conditions or join unions, they really saw this as a future project. So Singapore is not the place where I want to stay and engage with the state, but this is something I will do later if I get to the United States, for example. You end the discussion of the book with a the idea of home, and it seems to me that that idea is intertwined with ideas of aspiration and mobility. So one of the things you point out is that in contrast to some other communities of medical workers in Singapore, like uh, Burmese, most Filipino medical workers do seem to want to keep moving on, and they don't see Singapore as home, but rather as a place of transit to somewhere else. Why is that? And what are the implications both for their imagining of their own place in Singapore and their imagining of the place that they've come from? Right. So the aspirations of medical workers are tied very much to this idea of home as well. They don't want to be stuck in the Philippines. So it starts with this culture of migration, that nursing means going abroad. And that's a lot of pressure to do that if you take up nursing from family, from peers, um, you hear stories and gossip. So the social media plays a key role as well. You have friends who've gone abroad and display aspects of their good lives. Um, And so there is an aspiration to 
to go somewhere else for something better. What that something better means is not always so clearly articulated, but often it, it has to do with, it could be to help the family if, if the family is struggling, but it's also nurses who come from relatively comfortable backgrounds who want something more. And I think that's very much connected to this lure of America and, and the consumption of possibilities that you have, this imaginary of middle-class suburbia where you can have a house, a car, a stable life, your children have a good education. It's all projected onto America. And that, you know, it might sound like a cliche, this American dream, but I felt it very strongly among the people that I talked to. And, and that was really what they aspired to reach. Maybe not always America, but it, you know, it also could have been the UK sometimes. And so when they talked about Singapore and also places like Saudi Arabia, they always see it as a way to help them get to what they ultimately want to achieve. But I think their experience of Singapore and, and the shock they feel when, when it's not what they think it is kind of unsettles them. It perpetuates a feeling of Singapore being a stepping stone. So they already come to Singapore thinking it's going to be a transit city. And I think that's often accentuated from their first experiences, their disappointments. And so they again use their time rather than building social relationships and roots in Singapore, they're spending a lot of their time figuring out how to move on to achieve their aspirations somewhere else. So studying for you know, nursing exams, finding out information from friends who are in other countries, but at the same time displaying to, to, you know, to their families that they're doing fine, they're, they're successful, but you know, they might be go going somewhere better. At the same time, they romanticize the Philippines. From some of the other earlier examples, they often say in the Philippines, we don't do it like that. We care for the family. They're nostalgic for the social relationships. But they often say, you know, I love my country. And if, if I had a choice, I would stay there. But I don't have a choice. It's, it's the government. It's the corruption. It's the economy. And when they go back to the Philippines, they, it kind of takes them back to this harmonious moment, but it's only really a moment. They don't see their future in the Philippines, and they legitimize their own departures by saying, we need to continue with our projects. The difficulty is that for a lot of people in the transit city, they spend a lot more time there than they initially might have hoped. So, for example... One of my informants wanted to move on to the UK where she had some family and she had enrolled in a nursing college there, had all the paperwork, but her visa was then rejected uh, because it turned out the nursing college she had applied to, which was also going to offer her a job, was shut down. So you had a lot of these projects and plans that don't come into fruition because of changing immigration policies and the infrastructure around this migration. So people end up being stuck in the transit city. People also end up developing relationships in the transit city they might not have initially imagined. And I take the example of a few nurses I met who found, in a sense, their calling in a church in Singapore, not a Catholic church, but a more evangelical movement. And many of them saw it as a new sense of home, a new sense of belonging. They saw their purpose not as nurses, but as servants of God, and it was their mission in Singapore to really devote their time to this religious community. And other similar examples where unexpectedly people might have developed relationships and they stay on in the transit city. So this idea of home and aspiration is, is constantly shifting. And whether these aspirations are ultimately realized, it's difficult really to see if that resolution 
Now that Caring for Strangers is published, what are you working on? Well, at the moment, I'm working at the United Nations University, which is situated between academic work and policy circles. So I've been continuing some of my work with Filipino migrants in Barcelona, where I'm based, with domestic workers in Barcelona, and finding a very, very different um, environment. So you don't really have this politics of status that I found in Singapore, and you have a much more politicized and cohesive kind of community. And so it was interesting to add that comparative lens to the work that I did, you know, for caring for strangers and to see how these issues play out in a very different context. And because we work also to try and translate some of our academic findings to policymakers, that's another dimension where I've been trying to look at what some of these ethnographic and academic debates could contribute to better protecting the rights of female migrant workers, the ratification of the Domestic Workers Convention, how to value certain types of labor. So that's been a, an interesting experience as well, to translate ethnography to a, a much different language. But I've also found it interesting and useful to try and communicate this work more broadly. I wish you all the best for that work. And thank you so much, Mega Amrit, for talking with us today about your new book, Caring for Strangers, Filipino Medical Workers in Asia. Thank you very much, Nick. And as always, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. And if you have an opportunity, do check out some of the other interviews on the New Books Network, like Jamil Aden talking with Christian Peterson about his intellectual history, the idea of the Muslim world, or Carla Nappi with Lisa Masseri about her ethnography of other worlds, placing outer space evidence, if it was ever needed, that you can always rely on the New Books Network to transport you somewhere that you've never been before. Hey, thank God, see you at the tender boat. Hey, thank God, see you at the tender boat. Hey, thank God, see you at the tender boat. Hey, thank God, see you at the tender boat.